Richard, how are you doing? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I am very well too. Good to have you on. I've, I love your channel. I've been looking around. We're going to be talking about narcissism and stuff. Do you, do you mind going through the basics? I mean, what what I know it seems obvious to a lot, of, but maybe it isn't obvious. What is narcissism? Um, well, narcissistic personality disorder is usually typified by somebody who is very, very attached to a false sense of self. Um, and through that false self, that delusional view of themselves as as grandiose and all-important and all-powerful, they filter reality. So they're not very good at taking on external reality. They filter it through this uh, delusional uh, false sense of self. So it's typified by, by envy, bullying, um, exploitativeness, um, a strong sense of entitlement, a deep sense of attachment to that false sense of self so that if you attack it or say you're not as amazing as you think you are, you'll usually experience what we call narcissistic rage. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean that these people don't necessarily realize they're doing bad things when they do bad things? It's, it sounds like from what you've said that they uh, they feel like they've been badly treated and they've been given dealt a, a rough hand. It's an interesting question. It's at the core of, of psychology. It's like a philosophical question. Um, if somebody is mentally ill, are they alleviated from any sort of moral uh, duty? Um, obviously, there are times within the legal system, if you can prove that you've become clinically insane for a temporary period of time, you can get a different sentence or a shorter sentence. Um, I believe that they know the difference between right and wrong. And I believe that this factors in strongly with psychopathy. They know what is right. They know what is wrong. They simply do not care. So I'm not hmm. in the camp of saying uh, that this is all moral relativism, that they're victims and that therefore that they should be absolved. I think everybody suffers trauma and we all have a choice for how we deal with that. But we definitely have. I mean, I know just from myself, I've, I've been to uh, therapy over the years, not, not, not a lot, but, you know, I lived in Argentina where they have the most therapy per capita in the world. So it was like you have to, it was like getting a cup of tea out there, you go and get a therapy session. And it definitely changed my perspective on times where I thought that maybe someone hadn't been good to me. And I thought, oh, well, actually, maybe that was my fault. And I was able to sort of look in, wasn't that sort of changed? So maybe, I guess what I'm angling at here is, can narcissists change? Can they start to see things, like reframe things? Um, narcissistic personality disorder would, so there's, the, the opinions differ on this. I'm in the camp that says if it's full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, then that's, in order to identify that as being that, then there has to be no capacity for change. It's extraordinarily rigid. So the uh, ability for them to deflect reality from entering into their space is really, really strong. It's really, really high, and they can keep reality at bay. There is narcissism that exists on a spectrum, though, and at the lower end of the spectrum where you just have a highly narcissistic style or what some people call low-grade narcissism, yes, there could be some change that can be affected over time. There'll be, you can teach people to change the way they act. Uh -huh. And maybe, the, I, I just think the way they frame, I guess if you're always thinking, oh God, they're always doing that to me, everyone's doing bad things to me. And if you, because I'm thinking of particular narcissists I know in my life, that's why I'm asking you, because I'm thinking, what can I, what can I do to maybe help them reframe things? Is there much you can do? Um, I think like you can attempt to feed back to them what's happening and then gauge how, receptive they are to that feedback if they're not receptive to it at all then really what can any of us do within the boundaries of the law i mean you could 
kidnap them and then stick them in a brainwashing camp and feed them psychedelics and um, you know, we train them to, to think in a, in a different way. But outside of doing that through adult to adult consensual conversation, no, there's, there's very, very little hope. Hmm. Was there was there something that happened perhaps in your life? What sparked your interest in in narcissism and uh, leading to your quite wonderful and popular channel? Um, I think uh, I was raised in a highly narcissistic environment. Um, I would think that my parents would be on the uh, spectrum for narcissism as well as borderline and, and psychopathy. Um, so I was raised in a very unstable environment. So I've always had a a lifelong interest in, in mental health. And then as I got into adulthood, I was examining some of my relationships and I could see, um, I think out of two of, of 12 relationships, there was a very, very high degree of um, narcissistic style there, to say the least. Do you think that, is, is there, and not in a victim blaming way, but is there something that some of us do to attract or to search for narcissists? I'm not one of those mental health people that jumps up and down in the politically correct way about victim blaming. I, 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 don't, I don't like the way that any, any emphasis of putting responsibility back on the other person is just written off as, as victim blaming. Victim blaming is like, um, it's like code words. Obviously, victim blaming exists, but you know, to say, hey, uh, did you maybe have some semblance of, of an impact on this relationship between two adults? I don't consider that victim blaming. No, I think um, it's a perfectly reasonable question and any responsible adult should welcome that question um, and not write it off as, as some sort of, I don't know, microaggression or offense um, or victim blaming. Um, no, of course, we have a responsibility. Unless you were dragged into the relationship at gunpoint but that's psychopathic abuse. That's where the law has been transgressed. That's uh, the kind of thing serial killers do. Um, and this is not that, it requires our consent. And then when we stay, even after we've realized the relationship is abusive, we have to ask the question, well, why, why did I stay? What was causing me to stay there? Mm. And what kinds of things, is it sort of people pleasers and that kind of person? Um, I I think I think the human mind will look for uh, simple solutions to to quite complicated questions, and we have two hands, we have two halves of the brain, and two eyes, so we like to create dichotomies and binaries. Um, so there there is like this tendency to go, oh, there's a narcissist, and there's a codependent, or a people pleaser, or, or whatever. I think sometimes. It's an individual thing. I think individually, yes, sometimes, like people like myself definitely have a pronounced um, people please a tendency because of the environment that I was raised in, that was a survival mechanism for me. And for other people, they're just entrained through the relationship itself. They had no pre-existing problem, but the relationship itself entrained them to behave in a new way and to react and feel in new ways. Narcissistically abusive relationships, uh, especially if they're romantic, or familial, the more intimate they are, are brainwashing camps. It's a cult with two people inside of it. It's a cult of one, essentially. Uh, one leader, one follower. And you are brainwashed. You are brainwashed inside of that camp. So that brainwashing can lead to people-pleasing tendencies, even if those not there before. Wow. And then I'm just thinking as well, uh, and I'm just thinking out loud here, because I don't know anything about this, but do people sometimes, if they've got a narcissistic 
parent, do they then seek out a partner that mimics that relationship sometimes as if almost if, like this time I can get it right, that kind of thing? Yes. Um, that was something that Freud identified as, as repetition oh. compulsion. So the pain, yes, you're just like Freud. I'm just thinking that. <laughs> you'd, be glad, you'd be glad to know. Um, so yeah. he, he, he would have said, uh, yeah, repetition compulsion. You're trying to resolve something in childhood that you failed to resolve in adulthood. And you're doing it compulsively. You're doing it unconsciously and obsessively, desperately seeking for that release from the, the trauma bind from, from childhood. It can be that. It can be that we were raised in environments that were abusive and tyrannical and dictatorial. And so abusive, tyrannical, dictatorial environments feel like home to us. They feel comfortable to us. Something that is egalitarian, adult um, and, and honest and, and requires consent would feel uncomfortable, would feel alien and strange. And so we would move away from it if we were raised in those kinds of environments. Interesting. And, and where do you stand on Freud? Because again, I don't know much about psychology, but obviously it, it was sort of very in vogue not long ago to, you know, Freud this, Freud that. And now it seems to be always discredited. And, but what you just explained, which was my own theory, you know, parroted back at me, I suppose, in a sense, uh, I suppose it makes sense to me. And then, of course, it does, because that's what I just said. But it makes sense, right? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think if you look, I mean, um, Jung, Freud, Adler. Freud was a complicated man. Um, there was probably too much wholehearted acceptance for the things he said originally. He really is the grandfather of psychology, not just the grandfather of psychoanalysis. And then around the 70s, um, I don't think it was her fault, but I think it was a sign of the times. Uh, a journalist who was a radical feminist came up with a conspiracy theory um, about Freud that's been widely circulated and widely accepted since that he was essentially victim blaming uh, the experiences of his female patients who'd been abused in childhood. It's not tr true. The radical feminist journalist, not a psychologist, a journalist, got it wrong got it totally wrong, or she willfully got it wrong. But the moment was, you know, screw this old white German guy with a cigar in his beard who never smiles. He's not like Jung, who's always pictured smiling, and Adler was a friendly socialist. Uh, Freud, Freud was much more paternal, and it was an anti-patriarchal moment. So this meme of saying, screw you to Freud, spread like wildfire. So to this day, yes, in university, when I was at university, if you said Freud, people laughed at you. Wow, that's fascinating. But he was a genius. Freud was cancelled. He was a genius. He was cancelled, yeah, he's been cancelled. Cancel culture got Freud. I can't believe yeah. that. Wow, what a, what, a, what a shame, I suppose. Well, I quite like that sort of concept that we're always trying to sort of rectify things. You, you mentioned the cult of one before, sort of being with a narcissist. What about cults in general? Um, I gather psychopaths, for example, there's like 1% in society, but probably to a 3% is CEOs and maybe cult leaders and stuff. Might that also um, relate to, to narcissists? Might there be sort of cult leaders who are narcissists and things? Narcissistic uh, and psychopaths are frequently comorbid. Um, so I, th I believe narcissistic personality disorder of all the personality disorders is most often comorbid, which means it, it shows up with other personality disorders. Or in other words, it's very rare for somebody to be 
just narcissistic personality disorder. So one of the things that they're frequently comorbid with, diagnosed with, is psychopathy. So narcissistic psychopaths are going to look for environments that affirm rather than challenge their um, delusional self-image, which is the delusional self-image is I'm amazing, I'm wonderful, and I deserve special treatment. So they will either seek to become leaders uh, legitimately, as you know, CEOs or put themselves in positions of power, or yes, they will actually seek to run cults. People who are running cults are probably at the more psychopathic end of the spectrum and less pro-social. Uh, the more pro-social they are, you're probably looking at somebody who's on that spectrum of psychopathy to narcissism is more of a narcissist. It's interesting because I always look at those leaders and think that they sometimes they seem to be true believers, you know, in whatever they're preaching. Uh, and I guess we like to think of like the good guys and the bad guys, but maybe they think they're good guys. I guess I guess I don't know what my question is because because you can't possibly answer it without speculating. But but I mean, to, to to what extent to what extent are cult leaders really thinking that they're doing good, and can that still mean that they are you know a psychopathic narcissist? Um, I think once you've entered the realm and you're looking at the subjective reality of a narcissist psychopath, these questions about good and bad they they don't really make that much sense there you know it's like taking a psychedelic and entering a hellscape inside of that subjective reality there is only exploitation there is only power there is only control the concept of good and bad is like an alien language that they have to learn to speak to dominate colonize and exploit the aliens that they're there to exploit we are alien to them we are things to them so good and bad is not it's not something they're going to lie awake at night thinking about. Power or not power is is something they would lie awake at night thinking about. Interesting, because I I thought that was psychopaths, but but just narcissists, like not psychopathic narcissists. I would have imagined, and again, I know I'm coming from a place of knowing nothing, that they would be like, oh God, the world's against me, and and everyone else is doing bad to me, but but am, am I doing wrong? Would they, or would they? But, but you're saying that's not the case. They're not wondering if they're doing wrong. Not particularly until you start to look at another potential model, which would be fragile or vulnerable narcissism, where because that's driven by a strong sense of guilt and shame. So in view of that, this is, this is a model that's questioned um, by some er areas of psychology. Fragile or covert narcissism or vulnerable narcissism would be triggered by their own grandiosity. So let's say I imagine that I deserve special treatment. But the world largely doesn't confirm that. They just think I'm an idiot and I'm a loser. I'm not getting the feedback that I'm as wonderful as my false self is telling me that I am. So I'm constantly triggered by my own grandiosity and the feedback from the world into feelings of failure and guilt and shame. They may be more prone through trying to roll through those feelings of guilt and shame to consider, am I doing good? Am I doing bad? But I would still claim that that filter of good, like, We'd have to have, again, it's a philosophical question. What does good mean? So good to you might mean really serves people and is, is good for the social environment. Good to them might be it, everybody is praising me for serving people and praising me for being good to the social environment. Do you see the difference? Yeah, yeah. Do we not? I said a lot of words there. I'm not, I'm not sure if that made sense. <laughs> no, it made, it made total sense. Like good to be praised... Uh, and good to yes, yes, but not because you think you're doing good. 
right, but not really good. Not actually authentically good. It's only good if I'm seen to be good. Yeah. But do we not all have a... I guess it must be on a spectrum to an extent. Because I've had that feeling when I've like given money to a charity or something, and then I'm desperate to tell people that I did it, right? Deep down. I don't, obviously, I'm slightly ashamed of that, but I don't mind admitting mm-hmm. that to you. I want to tell people I've done it. So I must have some yeah. of that in me. Or am I now... Am I a narcissist? No, I think, I think that... Um... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there was uh, either stories in in the Christian Bible. It was certainly stuff that I was taught growing up as a, as a Christian that, you know, the truly Christian thing to do is to help people without seeking recognition. But there are people, I'm, I'm sure it was a parable, but there are people who will only do it if they get recognition. There is latent narcissism in all of us. We are um, social creatures. We're tribal creatures. My sense of self is not individual it's moderated by how the other members of my tribe view me so the idea of doing good without receiving any social currency for that is not really written into the the sort of the software of being a human being so then you'd have the question like where's the discrete boundary between the latent normal narcissism healthy narcissism the average human um and that of a malignant narcissistic psychopath and it could be a question of degree. It could be a question, like, you can admit it and have a sense of humor about it. And I'd be like, mate, you should do that anyway, you know? And you go, oh, yeah, I should. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. There's just no reason on earth why they would. So the rigidity would be the difference that makes the difference. If I said that to somebody who's an narcissistic psychopath, that's where the shutters would come down. They'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to give my money away without getting recognized for it. I think we all know people like that. How common are they? Like, would we all have gone, had one or two mates in our school group who were one of them? Um, they they changed the figures. Uh, where where psychologists get these? I mean, psychology is, you know, <laughs> tries to be scientific. It's a soft science at best. So they were saying it was one in a hundred, and now some are saying five percent, and some are saying fifteen percent. It depends on how you measure it. I mean, that's science, isn't it? Like, you, you know, you make, a, you, make a, you make a claim about your data and I'm another scientist. I'd be like, can I see your work, please? I'd like to know how you came yeah. to that conclusion. So if we mean like a pronounced narcissistic and exploitative style, I would, I would agree with the people that say that, yes, it's a very high percentage of the population, 15, 20%. Actual malignant narcissistic psychopaths narcissistic psychopaths i think would be still quite a small number i think it's probably like two or three out of 100 but social media modern media modern culture encourages a narcissistic style so um yeah i think i think we're going to see huge numbers of of that number of that type of thing exploding so yeah i think that's very commonplace today so that that would suggest that it's not you're not necessarily born a narcissist. I mean, you spoke of latent narcissism, uh, but but the idea that our society is shaping narcissism. I mean, is that something that worries you? Um, very much, very very much. I mean, I'm very concerned about the state of the world and the state of our so-called civilization now. Um, it could be because I'm a middle-aged man and I'm becoming curmudgeonly and I see the world as being on the road to ruin. Or we could be going through a real phase of, of, of negative downward change. I don't know. But yes, it, it worries me very much. I am not a fan of the idea you were born this way. The reason why I'm not is because it appeals to 
um, a sort of a superstitious sense. Humans like these stories. They like, oh, you got that from your dad. You know, you got your green, your grandfather had green eyes and your grandmother was a horrible bitch. And that's why you, you know, steal money at work or whatever you do. So I, I, we like that and we're superstitious in that way, but that's not good enough. There isn't really hard evidence yet to suggest that there is a genetic component. And anyway, we live in the age of epigenetics, which means that your environment affects the expression of different genes. So it becomes a moot point. Like if you were raised in an abusive environment, did that cause at an epigenetic level, the expression of different genes that made you less empathic and more confrontational and more exploitative? Entirely possible. So yeah, I don't, I, I would encourage people to stay away from the, the just so version of things. Like, yes, he was born a psychopath or she was born a narcissist. It's, it's probably both. It's probably nature and nurture. It's the environment and, and what you're born with. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Oh, these Syrian pumpkin seeds from Coral are amazing. I have them on my cheese and toast every morning. Have you been getting into them, Jen? Yes, and all the health benefits it brings. <laughs> Look at that. There's quite a lot. Quite a lot <laughs> Lashings of them. Right. Pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. And what is it about society that is encouraging narcissism? How long have you got? Um, <laughs> brief, briefly, we we probably somewhere along the line, as a as a society, whatever that means, or or as a culture, or as a people. I mean, but this is a global phenomenon now. We kind of sold our soul a little bit. We lost religion. We embraced scientific materialism. Fine, you know that's that seemed like progress. I understand that, but I think unhindered the um, sort of the very Western mechanistic materialistic view of reality brought about an acceleration of consumer capitalism, which means that the people were encouraged to buy goods, not that they needed, but that they wanted. And we could thank Edward uh, Bernays, Freud's nephew, um, for the propagation of that, of that problem. He created uh, marketing, modern marketing as we understand it, in fact, is created by Sigmund Freud's nephew using his uncle's principles of the unconscious. And he did a very good job and he made an awful lot of money. But with consumer capitalism, we're all pushed into a modality that makes narcissism and psychopathy a more logical way of conducting yourself in the world. So if you're a materialist, a, a, a mechanical materialist, you believe that this flesh suit is going to be healthy for like 65 years and dead after 85 years. It only makes sense that you should experience as much pleasure and power as you can in the limited period of time you have. That's consumerism. So drink more, eat more, snort more coke, have sex with more people. 
it creates um, a very vulgar and brutalizing cultural milieu that we have to swim through. And as we're swimming through it, we all become more vulgar. We all become more brutal in order to survive in what is effectively, in my eyes, becoming a prison planet. It's The planet itself is beautiful. We have everything we need here, but we've swallowed a nightmare pill and we're turning it into a, a real horror show. Hmm. Is that... I'm just trying to think of like the sort of tribe dynamics. I don't know if maybe I'm reading too much into that stuff. Uh, evolutionarily, you're in a tribe. And I suppose you've got to get that balance right between doing what's right for you to survive long enough to pass on your genes. So you've got to be selfish in that respect. And also what's what's good for the tribe. And so so I guess this is when we become narcissistic, is it just tilting a little bit too far that way? Well, when we, when we were living as hunter-gatherers, the thing that would have held, I mean, there was just no chance for capitalism, never mind consumer capitalism, because capital is stuff. And if you're running in fear of your life or running to find shelter all the time, what can you hold in your hands? Like a spear, your favorite cloak, your father's thigh bone or whatever, whatever like they were carrying around. And, um, you know, you just couldn't, capitalism wasn't, wasn't an option and consumer capitalism was millennia away. Consumer capitalism has been around for the flash of an eye as capitalism has. I'm not a Marxist, but Marx identified something that he called uh, primitive or tribal communism, which is what you're talking about, which is say if we lived in a, in a hunter gatherer tribe, you and I and 28 other people fighting for survival every day, of course, I'm going to feed you if I can. Of course, we share the tools because if we don't, we're all gonna die. Like there's no, there's no options there. There's, there isn't like a cornucopia of choice that's gonna spoil the human mind. Brett Weinstein uh, talks about this a lot on the Dark Horse podcast. We are not a good evolutionary match for, these, for the environment that we've created. We're a very poor evolutionary match. So you asked about evolution, that, that, that was what made me think. Yeah, about. yeah. I'm I'm really interested in that stuff. I get I get really excited by by all of it. Um, I mean I mean I suppose as well in the tribe. Did it did it make sense? Well, I, okay. I guess you're saying that there's, there's not necessarily just a psychopathic gene or something. So I'm wondering if it made sense to have the odd psychopath in a tribe. I suppose in case you're warring against another tribe. Uh, yeah, you would you would have had. I mean, it, <laughs> psychopath and narcissist are. Uh, these are culture-bound definitions that they don't even make sense in modern Western culture. They don't make sense outside of our culture. It doesn't it doesn't mean anything? Um, other than um, all all psychological diagnoses are. There are plenty of cultures where you could talk to the spirits, talk to the rain gods, you know, believe that you changed into an eagle and had a vision of the future of the truck. That wasn't a problem. You try that now, they'll lock you up. So it's all it's all context specific. So other people have changed that and called it the warrior gene. They said these are the war makers of the narcissistic psychopaths. And yes, probably, there probably is an evolutionary advantage in having in a tribe of 50, one or two of the guys there being a bit unhinged uh, just in case there's a real problem and you throw them forward first. They probably would have been, uh, uh, had a very high tolerance for risk, very high levels of aggression, being extremely delusional, like they thought they would conquer in every in every battle, which you should be if you're running into battle because you have a better chance of surviving if you do. So yes, it, it could have been incidental in that way, yeah. 
Interesting. How long would you have to have a conversation with someone before identifying them, or would you be able to identify them as a narcissist? Um, I mean, if, you, you, you're not you're not really supposed to do it through a conversation. You need a qualified clinician uh, to give them questionnaires that they can't trick their way through under clinical conditions. Um, inside of an hour of, of me personally talking to somebody, I can see if they are mentally ill in a way that is going to be problematic inside of about 45 minutes to an hour. You can tell. You can tell if people are open to new concepts, if they're capable of listening. Um, I believe that you can probably tell the rate at which people are processing thoughts to a degree, or you can intuit it. Um, so yeah, about 45 minutes to an hour to know if somebody had a serious mental health issue that was going to make communication difficult. But narcissism, I very rarely in my personal life do I look at people and go, oh, that person's, that person's a narcissist. Because if I let myself do that once, I think I'd, I'd probably go crazy. Yeah. I remember reading in the psychopath test, John Ronson's book, uh, he said that he became a bit sort of addicted as a, as a lay person. You really, it's really quite an addictive thing to go around pointing going, well, he's definitely one. He's one. And as soon as I read that, I started doing the same thing, always aware that I was being ridiculous, but thinking, yeah. Oh God, oh, I wonder who's a narcissist in my life. It must, I mean, it's tempting, isn't it? That kind of, we like to put people in boxes, I suppose. We, we like to put people in boxes. And I think, there's kind of like a parlor game element to it. It's like, who's who done it? Who's the murderer? Um, who's the narcissist in any group? Um, I just, I, I've, I've really avoided doing that because um, I just think it would, I just think it would do irredeemable damage to my ability to have relationships with people. So I really, when I'm off, when I'm not working, uh, I really switch off. Like, I just don't, I just don't think about that stuff at all perhaps to my detriment that's probably gotten me into trouble with people because i'm just off <laughs> <laughs> what about like celebrities that you look at it must be you must be tempted a lot of people talk about uh someone like megan markle someone like tom cruise they get talked about a lot as potentially you know on online and stuff have, have you thought about them yes uh, I, I do sometimes you know um i watched uh, tom cruise thanking people on an Instagram video yesterday for attending uh, the Top Gun movie. And then he parachuted backwards out of a plane um, and continued talking during the parachute jump with the special mic he had on. It was really impressive. Wow. And I, and I was thinking, what, you know, he's been doing that kind of stuff for years. And I was thinking, what makes him tick? And if you see him receive like his gold medallion at the uh, Dianetics Club, what's the other word for Dianetics? Uh, Scientology. Thank you, Scientology. Uh, the Scientology. Yeah. Have you seen him receive his gold medallion from? The I've seen pictures of that when he's got the thing. Yeah, yeah. And you just think, well, what must it be like for any of them who became stars at such a young age, and then they maintain? Like he's maintained. He's had a good career. He's maintained a level of success. Like he's one of the all-time Hollywood greats. Um, and so you would, I would, like I would be weird. I would be very strange like if, if, if I'd lived, I mean, from the age, I think he was one of his first major roles. He was like 18 or 19. How weird would you be if the world knew your face at 18 or 19 and you had just unlimited access to money, sex, drugs, every vice you can think of? It doesn't matter. People are going to protect you because you're such a high value asset. 
that level of fame, I, I, I'm not surprised that people like that become strange. Um, I, I've never seen anything that makes me think he's particularly uh, predatory. Um, Meghan Markle, on the other hand, <laughs> just seems <laughs> to on. live. Well, I, I would just look on the face of it. I would just look. I would. I, 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 I'm not going to say narcissist, psychopath, borderline, but I would say, um, you know, parasite. Um, and I would say highly manipulative. She's entered uh, a foreign territory, literally and figuratively, and gouged something out of that territory, taken it away to another place, and is now feeding on it. So it's, she's, uh, she's absolutely... The actions itself are exploitative and parasitical. And you look at poor, poor Harold there, he doesn't look like a strong, healthy, happy, masculine, assertive man. You know, he's a fluttering little nitwit at this point. It's not not um, very smart. Uh, the, Im eh? the impression I the impression I get is he's not very smart. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, perhaps. You know, perhaps inbreeding isn't a really good way of isn't a really good policy <laughs> for, for creating smart royals. Um, no, I I never thought of him as being particularly dimwitted until I watched ten minutes of which was all I could stomach of their Netflix show, and I thought, wow, he's pretty stupid. Actually, he's a pretty stupid man. Um, but yeah, that, that I would say at the very least, I can't say narcissist codependent, but I can say yes, that bears the hallmarkings of, a, of an abusive relationship for sure. Interesting. So, because Megan, she's—I suppose what I was talking about at the start, I guess. What in my mind, it's these narcissists who think they're doing good and doing right. I listened uh, again as, as much as I could stomach to, to her audio podcast uh, where she interviewed <laughs> Serena Williams. And I was just blown away by line after line because Serena Williams is one of the most respected, uh, incredible people. You know, I, everyone seems to respect Serena Williams for what she's done, what she's accomplished in tennis and all that stuff. And Serena kept putting herself on, sorry, uh, Megan kept putting herself on the same level. She was going, you know, people like us and the things we've done and people, why don't people like um, ambitious people like us? And I was just thinking, like, well, everyone likes Serena Williams' ambition, but what is your ambition, Megan? She didn't state her, she didn't state what her ambition was. <laughs> and, and I think, again, you could, one could say that's quite narcissistic. Serena Williams has endured a militaristic samurai level of practice since she was a child. And now at the end of like year, decades of that, she's really good at doing a thing. What's Meghan Markle good at doing? What, what's, what, where's her practice? What, what does she practice that? Stealing royals. It was a, it was a Stealing really royals who have mummy, pre-existing mummy issues. Well, yeah. I was what I was listening, just going. I was waiting for the moment where she just. I, I find it so slippery because I just want her to state what it is her ambition. Because all she talks about the whole episode was ambition and why women aren't allowed to have ambition. Women like her and Serena can't have ambition, and people don't like them having ambition. I just wanted her once to say what her ambition was because, as you say, it just seemed to be becoming a princess, which doesn't seem to be a feminist ideal. And again, people said to me when I've said this before, "Well, you're a man, you shouldn't say what." A feminist ideas well fair enough but plenty of women will also say that becoming a princess is not really an ideal yeah i mean she is ambitious that's for sure who who doesn't want serena williams to do good i've never heard anybody say get you know get rid of serena williams get her out of, of women's tennis I, all i hear is support <laughs> and praise which is as far as i know all she deserves all she's done is work really hard 
and now she's an amazing athlete and fairly positive it seems no for her to compare herself to serena williams is is it's insane i mean it's it's completely yeah. ludicrous it's a kind of reverse appropriation she's yeah well so, actually yes she's appropriating serena williams's virtue but she's also colonizing serena williams with her victimhood complex like we're both victims of the same conspiracy no no you're not you're not nobody's a victim of, of a conspiracy here people don't like you because you're not likable the royals didn't like the royals i'm sure are a weird bunch i'm sure it's not easy to go hang out and have tea at their house but if they didn't like her it's because she's not likable mm, yeah well I, I hope anyone if anyone tuned in when richard was just saying uh, people don't like you because you're not likable. He was just talking about Megan, just so anyone knows. If you're just not about me, uh, in case because it, it, in case anyone popped in at that second. My my analysis of you, Andrew, is you are not likable. <laughs> <laughs> in case anyone got in and thought, oh, we're, this is juicy. I've just stumbled yeah, in on a fight what, here. What, what's going off here? Settle down, yeah. boys. The thing about you, Andrew, is you're not likable, and that's why the Queen doesn't like you anymore. All right, so that's it. So no, I, I think so Megan, Meg I think Megan would say or do anything to position herself in a in a role where she got attention, and and she doesn't have anything. Like she's not. She was. She's a nice looking girl. Uh, she was an actress, sort of, for a bit. I don't know what it is with royals and American actresses. Isn't she the third or the fourth royal? In the, yeah, in the last 150 years, sorry, she's the third or the fourth American actress who's, who's managed to gouge one of the royals out of the royal family. But um, interesting. Yeah, she's not. You know, she's not gifted in any way, so she has to move to victimhood. She has to lay claim to mm. uh, claims of victimhood, which I've not heard any that sound particularly legitimate uh, to me. I've not heard anything that sounds like a, a legitimate claim to victimhood anything outside of what anybody else would receive trying to move in with a family full of weird toffs yeah they're probably yeah. not that friendly they're probably not very down to earth this well, is the annoying why, thing because i, I know people, them then? people will leave comments because they do and they'll say two things one is they'll say oh it's because of uh, because she's black right and, and i would just say and i know i get in trouble when i say this i swear to god i didn't realize she was black until no, I didn't. relatively recently did. right no we we can say this as as i think it's because we're english like um it's it's just different here in america they were like of course she knew she was black i did not know that she was black i had no idea well i lived in i lived in latin america for eight years and she could easily be latina and yeah. I, I grew up in a jewish families as well in england just Jew, and, and a lot yeah. of she could easily pass as jewish or something as well yeah. Or, 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 yeah. Or, or just white and 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 that's not yeah. you know the fact that we're even sitting here discussing what someone's skin color is is, is not the ideal situation. But she sort of started well, that. Well, and we, I just find we, that preposterous. Yeah, we don't do that. Like as as Brits, we we don't we don't do that. And so we're being judged by American neurosis and by by the American level of psychosis. It's not. It doesn't matter how many times you say this to Americans, they won't hear it. It is not and has never been the issue in this country that it is over there. I'm not saying it's a racism-free utopia. That's a different claim and what I'm not making, but we don't have the same issues. And no, I had no idea. I think I was, I think I'd heard her name a couple of years. And then somebody said, the uh, black American actress, and I went, who? 
who are you talking yeah. about? I, I, if, if nobody, it never occurred to me to guess. But had you asked me to guess, I would have said maybe, maybe Dominican or maybe she's like like you said Latin American, or no one cares. Who cares? Who cares? Or Spanish? I don't know. Yeah. It didn't matter. So that's the first thing. So anyone who's going to, and I know people will comment that anyway, because they won't listen to the full thing and they'll just hear us talking about Megan in the beginning. They will comment that anyway. Oh, it's because of that. And I think those are the people (laughs) with a race issue because they're obsessed. And then the second thing that they'll always say, which you've already addressed, is like, oh, so you think the royal family's perfect, do you? And it's like, no, no, but that's not the point. It's just that I wouldn't marry the royal family. But she chose to do that. You know, She's made a concerted effort and she stated her purpose. She stated her ambition before she began with him, that she wanted entrance into the royal family. She pushed and pulled and manipulated her way in there with rigid determination, got inside the castle, as it were, and then whinged that it was a bit cold and a bit windy in there. What did you think it would be like, my love? She never had any intention of being a royal, never had any intention of staying. This was her way of getting into the limelight. And I think the problem that they're both going to find in the next year is no one cares No one cares. There's no reason to care. If you're looking at victimhood, if you're looking at controversy, if you're looking at a fascinating couple with something to say, they're blown out of the water by other people, other issues and other things that are going on. I really think, and I'm going to take great satisfaction in this, karma is going to bite them in the ass and they will Mm. slip away as they probably already are into a state of indifference. Nobody's going to care. The, The race issue, the female issue, the royal issue, who cares? There's a war on. There's energy prices all over the place. No one cares about you, Megan. Boo-hoo. Well, people do like to sort of join in gossiping about them. They want to hear gossip stuff about them because they're so fed up with them. I think they just don't want to listen to them. Because I'm, yeah, if, I'm on YouTube, if I see on YouTube... <laughs> If I see a clip and someone's like, oh, the, one, of the, one of the reasons Megan this or that, or Harry's an idiot because of this or that, I'll click that. But that documentary on Netflix, I've gone past it about 50 times thinking I can't think of any more boring people than them to actually yeah. listen to. I mean, there is just... I lied before when I said I got through 10 minutes. I think I, I didn't want to sound like I had ADHD. I think I did four. And I think by the 10th... Obviously, in the beginning, they're going to cut out the most powerful statements and, and give what is it? I think it's called a cold open, whatever it is, to lure you in. They're like, oh, I want to know the context for these controversial statements. Just insipid, trite aphorism after insipid, trite aphorism. Had a, a, a comedian written those lines, I would have believed it more. You know, Harry whinging about this, Megan offering some philosophical whimsical insight into grief and i'm I'm not listening to this i'll be dead one day i don't have time for this (laughs) yeah what is that is that narcissism then is she is she just a narcissist i can't say that she has narcissistic personality disorder i can say that she's a fairly standard issue millennial sorry but but (laughs) i told you i'm becoming a middle-aged curmudgeon there is a type of there is So when I say millennial, I'm not condemning all people of a certain generation, but it is known that there was a cultural shift and um, not everyone within that age group went along with it, but many people within that age group developed a kind of narcissism light and a sort of a low-grade narcissism um, and became very self-focused and very fame-focused. And I, I taught those kids. I taught those kids when they were in school. So when I was 25, I was teaching 27, I was teaching 15, 16 and 17 year olds. 
So I knew what was coming. This was back in um, 2005, 2006, 2007. I was working with the British education system. I knew what was coming. And she's that age. She's Megan, Megan Markle is that age. They, they literally, when you said to them, what do you want to be when you grow up? The majority were saying, I want to be famous. And I was like, for what? Like, as, as a serial killer? As a, as a committer of genocide? Like, what? For what? And it was just, they, they'd consumed so much reality TV, so much of the Kardashians, so much of Big Brother, these music shows uh, where, they, you know, Britain's Got Talent and the talent shows, oh, yeah. and you hear the backstory and the sadness and the victimhood, and then that's supposed to affect your listening to how well they can sing or dance. It ruined, it scrambled kids' brains. And I think, does she have narcissistic personality disorder or is she just a standard issue wannabe model actress of a generation who who was determined enough or lucky enough to get herself in a position where she got intimate access to Harry. I mean, she is a good looking girl. If she said the right words to him, if she was smart enough to say the right words to him and give him the right level of, of, of physical intimacy, yeah, it's it's easy to see how she could pull him in and make him feel heard and understood. I'm so sorry you're the younger brother. You'll never be king. Everybody sees you as a kid. I don't know my love. You know, it, it's the game that she must have run on him would have been textbook. Um, but I, I can't sit here and say hey, that's narcissistic personality disorder. I can just say it's highly exploitative and highly narcissistic. I think so too. Um, <clears throat> I've seen you've done a video on word salad and I want to read you some word salad and I'm going to do the accent <laughs> of the person who it is and because I'm not a great impressionist but I'll, you might you might see and, and I'll, we'll get what, what you think afterwards. <clears throat> okay. Okay. So when I look at religious epistemology cross-culturally, I see a bipartite structure at the bottom of the hypothesizer. There's an idea that there's a material substrate that consists of a kind of latent potential that might be one way of looking at it. And there's the action of forming process on top of that. And it looks to me like it's something like what you would call an intuitive apprehension of the relation between consciousness and the rise of complexity of living forms. Does that words, would that be word salad? Well, well, it depends on what you mean by word salad, bucko. I mean, you know, clean your room. Um, yeah, that's that's bucko. That's gibberish. That's, 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 bucko. that's okay. gibberish. To, to, total gibberish. Total gibberish. Yeah. Um, so you you caught on and that was Jordan Peterson. And I'm so happy about that because um, I'm not a good impressionist, but I, I, for some reason I can just about do him. <laughs> no, it was there. It's good. It was good. Yeah, um, yeah no, that, that, that really is... That's dreadful word salad. To, to be fair, and I, I'm going to say something that everybody says, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Jordan Peterson. When it comes to issues of psychology, he genuinely is very good. He genuinely is yeah. very insightful. I think, I think so. Relationship psychology, overcoming trauma. The early days, Jordan Peterson, like his first albums, 2015, 2016, <laughs> combining myth, Greek mythology, Christian mythology, um great when he tries to do politics economics and it sounded like he was trying to do philosophy there continental philosophy there he was talking to dawkins and i I think there was a there was a level of trying and he he was misguided because dawkins is so no nonsense so he was trying to up his words and things i think maybe to impress dawkins i don't know was so is this 
on Jordan Peterson's channel where he's interviewing Dawkins and Dawkins is trying to get away and go to another lecture. Yes. Yes. It, the, the, I do not know why Jordan Peterson released that. I don't know. It's awful. It sounds like he's on drugs. He really sounds high. And Dawkins is saying, Jordan, Jordan, I have to go. I have to go. I have another appointment. <laughs> well, just one more thing. The thing with the substrate of the vertical bubble. And you think, Jordan, <laughs> let the man go and do his job. What are you doing? Yeah, no, it was um, Richard Dawkins and Jordan Peterson are not. It's such a shame. I don't because I don't want to. I don't want to be that guy. Jordan Peterson deserves a certain amount of credit, but he gets too much credit, and he is very grandiose, very grandiose, and very prone to fall in love with his own image as reflected back by his fans. You know, the Dawkins interview was a bloody car crash. And then we get these weird videos like um, a message to the Muslims. And I'm thinking, mate, settle, settle down. Like, you know, like the the Muslims don't need you to give them a little lesson on how Jordan Peterson thinks you should be doing Islam better. Um, So, yeah, he's he's I, I would go so far as to say that in his case, I do think he's significantly mentally ill and very grandiose, very, very grandiose. Interesting, because you didn't want to go that far for Meghan or Tom Cruise, but with Jordan Peterson, you'll say you you will. I've listened to more of Jordan Peterson, and I've followed him over the years, and the cycles that he goes through, um, the drug use, the specific drugs he was taking and combining, and how he lied afterwards about the drugs he was and wasn't taking. He's. To, I'll, I'll I'll drop this here on on this channel. He told everybody he was addicted to benzos and that, that the only problem was that, that it was benzos. Now, the particular benzo, the specific one that he took, I had insomnia and somebody gave me half of one that I took and it ruined my life for a week. They were very powerful. But what Jordan is not saying is that he was also taking them with Ritalin. So he was taking an upper and a downer at the same time. That's why he got so sick. That's why he got so sick. Wow. This is, I I can't prove that, but there are podcasts where he intimates that's what he's doing. And I can even reference podcasts where he surges high and you can hear him coming up on the Ritalin and then he goes into a little K-hole on the bento. (laughs) Wow. So that's what's going on. That's why he's so different. Because also, I mean, the other thing I picked up, I guess with Dawkins, he was using a higher register because usually for a lay person like me, he's very easy to understand, which is one of the marks of his, I, I would call it, well, I don't want to call it genius, but what what is so good about him or what is so watchable about him. But when he yeah. spoke to Dawkins, the higher register came out. And then the same thing happened when he talked to Stephen Fry. This huge register suddenly came out. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not following this. And Stephen Fry is so good at speaking to people in a way that they can understand. And I yeah. think he was following Peterson, but no one else was. And it was like, I guess it was he wanted to impress those people, which in a way is endearing, isn't it? It, it is endearing and he's boyish in that way. And that's why when I say these things, I, I, I don't want rid of Jordan Peterson. I, I hope he stays with us. I hope he stays healthy. I hope he goes to therapy. Um, mm. He is a lover of Britain and he's a fanboy of British intellectuals and it, it shines through sometimes. He really loves Brits uh, and British intellectuals are on a pedestal for him. And you can hear he becomes a student. He's a fawning student in front of a lecturer and he just wants Stephen Fry and, and Richard Dawkins with their posh English accents to pat him on the head because he was a Monty Python lover when he was a kid. It's, it's that. Oh. Yeah, Classic. I think so. 
What's <laughs> and what, why is word salad a marker of a narcissist? Um, it's a good way of uh, taking a conversation where you want it to go. Um, and 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 <laughs> that sounded like Jordan Peterson was using word salad with Richard Dawkins as a narcissist. I, I don't think he was. I think he just was trying to impress him. But as a as a form of narcissistic abuse. Word salad is a way of um, avoiding responsibility when you're being caught. It's a way of reframing a situation that changes the power dynamic. It's a way of denying and deflecting responsibility and putting it back on the person who's accusing you. Word salad is a, is a pretty effective tool of, of keeping people off your back, uh, defensively speaking. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and we, we should, I think we're both saying that we do like the guy and we have to say that because there is an army of, of JP fans who are get like I was saying of Megan, who'll be very quick to comment and go, oh, well, what have you done? Why do you, and it's like, no, we said we do like the guy. You, you're right. We're just sort of having a nice chat about him. So yeah, it's go. well, and, and it's, um, there's a rigidity there. There's a, there's a sort of a rigidity and there's, there's a religious fervor that goes with that, which there shouldn't be. There's, nobody should attack. Nobody needs to defend Jordan Peterson. Nobody needs that he's, he's absolutely fine. Just let it be. Yeah. It's okay. If people say something that's critical of him, there's no need to get triggered. And, and if you are becoming triggered, that's a therapeutic issue that you need to deal with. You don't know the man. He's not going to give you a pat on the back. He's not going to give you a biscuit. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't let it ruin your day. And we're not even having a go at him really no exactly so i i find him like in terms of watching like i there's no one else who when he suddenly comes on the tv that i i can't help but watch and especially when because he gets very emotional he was on piers morgan recently and he started crying uh and he cried about pinocchio and stuff when he gets that emotional and he stop he takes those those gaps between words i just can't mm. there's no one i will watch like that do you know what i mean i think i think jordan on his best day um, is one of the greatest public speakers we have alive in the world today on his best day. On his worst day, it's, it's, it's chaos. It's, it's a little bit of a mess. And I think we're looking at somebody who's addicted. We're looking at somebody who's addicted to the limelight. He's addicted to the feedback he's getting from people. He releases too much. Um, some of the stuff is not edited properly. Some of the stuff is not well thought through. He's not always in the right mood for it. He knows he's emotionally labile, um, which is why people are emotionally labile, emotionally dysregulated tends to end up using um, drugs or alcohol to moderate those emotions. So it, it's one of those situations where brilliant, but, but flawed and, and damaged. And yeah, as we say, like, I, I hope, I really hope he sticks around. And I think he has a good core message. He has a very, very good core message that doesn't absolve him from the fact that he says and does things sometimes that are utterly ridiculous and they detract from the core message because people will then conflate the message with the messenger. What do you think makes a good speaker? Because I'm wondering, I think of Jordan Peterson, I think of like Barack Obama, they, they leave gaps in their words. And it's a really confident thing to do, because I would worry that someone would think I finished and would interrupt suddenly or something like that. But they leave these huge gaps. Is that a big part of it? I, possibly. Um, there's, a, there's another philosopher, a speaker that I like, uh, Slavoj Zizek, and, and Peterson and Zizek did this debate. And it was sort of a, a, you know, a sort of conflict style debate. Jordan Peterson is the better public speaker. Um, Slavoj Zizek doesn't leave gaps, but the content that Zizek was delivering per sentence was much better and, and much higher, but you wouldn't know it. So is it, mm. so who's better then? Like if, you, if you've got an amazing product, but you can't deliver it to anybody because nobody can 
know what you're doing or you have a solid product but you can deliver to everybody who knows what you're doing which is the winning strategy yeah i think pauses are good i think it's good to sit and think about your answer which is what he does um people ask him a question and he, he seems to be actually thinking it through in that moment rather than just delivering pat um you know pre-formulated uh, sort of answers which usually are just a form of ideology if they're not full through Richard, where do you want to send people? YouTube channel? Um, they can find me on, on YouTube if they put in Richard Granite. You will find me there. I am there. To please everyone do go. Uh, he's got Richard's got a hugely amazing channel, hugely popular channel. Uh, so please go, go check it out. Um, just you know, thank our guests for coming on by doing that. And Richard, thank you. That was wonderful. What a great chat that was. Wasn't that great, Richard? I loved it. Thank you very much, Andrew. It was a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you so much, sir.